Welcome to our 65th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast. This is David Helvard and my co-host from the Inland Ocean Coalition, still Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Well, hello, everyone. If you haven't been broiling in the heat for weeks on end, you're not fully appreciating this summer's climate emergency. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're experiencing a major harmful algal bloom that's also climate related. Someone who knows something about that is my friend Linda Hunter, the founder and director of the Wild Oyster Project. Linda's environmental careers included work with Greenpeace, the Farrellands Marine Sanctuary Association, and the Watershed Project, where she developed the first native oyster reefs to be built entirely by a community of volunteers. So Linda, before we get into how oysters can save the coast and resist fish-killing algal blooms, let's talk about how you first connected to the shoreline and the sea growing up. I grew up on the ocean, and uh, in fact, in Daytona Beach in Florida, and um for those who have never been to Daytona Beach, like every couple of blocks, there's an outlet to the beach. So if you're sitting in a car with a bunch of surfers, their head will turn to the right to see, like, check out the waves, you know, every two blocks. And then when I was in sixth grade, uh, my father said that if I got straight A's all year long in school, he would buy me a sailboat. I did, and he bought me a sailboat, although the sailboat was technically a rowboat with a centerboard, a rudder, and a sail. But I loved my sailboat. I was on the water all the time, sailing between the causeways and sometimes in the ocean as well. And I got to know the marine life, you know, up close because when you're when you're just by yourself in a little rowboat, uh, the porpoises will come up and say hello, and you can see manta rays. It was just, it it really solidified my love for the ocean, and um, that is uh, a lifelong passion of mine. And and did you think to go into it like academically? I mean, was it a career choice? <laughs> no, I actually have a degree in philosophy, so I became a bartender. And then, which is what people with degrees in philosophy do. And then um, I got a law degree and practiced law for a little bit and decided, oh, this is not fun at all. Uh, but then when the opportunity arose to do some, to work for Greenpeace, I, I mean, I would have scrubbed toilets for Greenpeace. I loved them. I thought, you know, they were the eco warriors and, and um, so I managed the finances of Greenpeace when we had this sheet. We were we were the renegade office, you know, and we uh, we had a five million dollar budget. All of that money came from people knocking on your door when you were trying to have dinner and saying, hey, I'm from Greenpeace. You want to sign my petition? Can you write us a check? They didn't take any corporate money or any grants. And uh and I got paid for chasing nuclear subs around the Bay. San I mean, Francisco Bay. It's San Francisco Bay. Yeah. Very oh, fun. The oyster project that you're working on is quite a, a leap from the work that you did with Greenpeace. I mean, we all love to eat oysters. I should say not everyone loves to eat oysters, but many people do. Um, but your focus is on restoration and the ecology around that. So walk us through that. Well, oysters have superpowers. <laughs> oysters are filter feeders, so they clean the water. They actually eat algae. 
they create a, a living, breathing ecosystem that encourages other marine life to thrive. And these these living oyster reefs, I mean, I've seen them in the Carolinas, South Carolina and Georgia, where they look like big whitewashed walls, picket fences in the in the salt water or the brackish water. And and how come I don't see those here in San Francisco Bay or haven't? Were, were they here? Are you bringing them back? They were here. Oysters have suffered so much at the hands of humans. You know, San Francisco was like a really tiny little town until the gold rush. And then it was like, whoa. So not only did the gold miners go up to the watersheds in the Sierra and just tear up rivers, but they sent all this sediment down into the bays that is just now clearing out like 150 years later. Sediment and also mercury, all the things that you associate with gold mining. So that was like, you know, the first kind of slap in the face for oysters because that sediment buried billions of oysters alive, plus the substrate that they needed to thrive. Another thing that we did is we built our cities all around the Bay. We built our cities right out to the Bay's edge. We got rid of wetlands. We got rid of oyster reefs, you know, along the water's edge. It's just quite shallow. So, you know, what oysters do if restored properly, I mean, they they can actually make that shoreline a much more healthy environment for for humans as well as critters. This is a big project. So do you did you have a a goal to utilize or restore so many miles or acre feet? What what is your goal? And how do you do it? And how do you do it exactly? <laughs> well I can tell you it's very challenging. We we have like so much support from both the community and We have a sister organization and our mentors and friends in New York City called the Billion Oyster Project. They have a lot more resources than than we do, and they have a goal of a billion oysters. (laughs) But but, how can I say this and be diplomatic? Um, In San Francisco and, and all around the Bay, we are stymied by the number of regulations that are required to put, like technically you are not allowed to throw an oyster shell into the bay or anything into the bay without a permit from BCDC. Which is the... Oh, I always forget. I think of that name as as like a a rock band, but... um, The Bay Conservation and Development. Yes. So they're, they're the final arbiters. The good thing is that they understand that oyster restoration is important. But when we built our first reef at Point Pinole, a reef that is thriving and consists of 100 reef balls, we had to get permits from five different government agencies to do so. And uh, two of the permits expired before we got all of them and had to be renewed. And we had to sign uh, something that said, if the if the reef is not successful, then we'll take it out. But the reef, as I said, the reef is thriving. So you get these shells, you collect them from restaurants, from from shellfish companies, and you don't grow oysters from shells. So how do you do it then? So oysters are looking for other oysters to attach to. That's the substrate. That is their prime real estate. If oysters were putting a 
an ad on Craigslist. It would say oysters desperately seeking other oysters, <laughs> but they are actually, they'll attach to anything. We, we once pulled a, a plastic lawn chair out of the bay during a shoreline cleanup in Richmond, and it was covered with native oysters. And they'll attach to rib wrap, although they hate rib wrap. Which and is so, dome fill. Yeah, so so just, for, uh, just a short little biology lesson is when an oyster is born, it actually has wings and it has a foot. And for the first 10 to 12 days of its life, it becomes part of the food web, it's zooplankton, and it's swimming around trying to make the most important decision of its life, where it's going to settle. Uh, Because uh, once they settle, the wings fall off and the foot becomes the glue that holds them to whatever they've settled on. So what an oyster would prefer and what it's looking for is oyster shell to attach to. So and that's one of the other cool things about oysters is they build their communities on the backs of their ancestors. So, so they're we, like corals in that way, only tastier. <laughs> I've never tasted a coral. Yeah. So so they're they're desperately looking for other oysters. So what you do when you create an artificial reef, either by making uh, oyster reef balls or even bagged shell, is you're saying here's oyster shell, come get them. And they find them and attach to them. When did you start the oyster project? And and what was your, you were saying you already have some in the water, some uh, reefs you've set up. How do you set it up and how labor intensive is it? And where's that labor come from? The reef that's in place, there's actually two now, but the reef that is in place I started at the watershed project when I was the director at the watershed project, which was a little bit maybe of a little mission drift. But I just, you know, I'd met some oyster enthusiasts uh, from the East Coast and I just went, this is such a cool idea and that's what I want to do. So, um, you know, our approach was very different than other projects in the Bay that are funded through government agencies like the Ocean Protection Council and like bigger agencies. And the difference between ours and them primarily is that all of the labor came from volunteers. Like we built the oyster reef balls at Point Pinole using an old cement mixer and having volunteers come out and we used a substance called baycrete, which is a combination of crushed oyster shell and concrete. And, you know, each one was lovingly built. <laughs> and one another funny story is when it when we had 100 reef balls ready to go and all our permits in place and everyone had blessed it, we had to get the oyster reef balls into the into the water and each one weighed a hun- uh, 300 pounds. And so I talked this guy <laughs> uh, from a marina into deploying them pro bono. And he said to me, so how are you going to get the reef balls to our barge? And I said, well, I think I could fit one at a time in the back of my Prius. And so, <laughs> so he rolled his eyes and then he sent like a big flatbed truck and a crane and six guys who took all of the hundred reef balls 
they deployed them according to all of our GPS coordinates, and it, it was it was great. Linda, how are the oyster balls now? How are they? Are give us a visual. How many uh, oysters approximately? How What's long have they been in the water? They've been in the water for six years. We recently partnered with the, uh, and and they're thriving. Uh, oysters have die-offs as part of, uh, you know, if it rains too much, uh, you know, they like a nice combo of salinity and fresh water. So if it rains a lot, but remember when it used to rain? Yeah. So um, like during big rain events, like there, there have been die-offs, but then they came back. I mean, that's nature. And we also teamed up with the port of uh, San Francisco recently to deploy 60 reef balls in Hunter's Point, uh, a very uh, poor community in the southern part of the city that has terrible water quality and terrible air quality. And uh, the community is really excited about that. And we took our, um, our cured shell and we put them inside of the reef balls and they're going to be monitored for 10 years. So we're very proud of that project. That was, uh, that was a great partnership and it was wonderful to see because it really is a labor of love for volunteers to go collect. I call it schlepping shell. It, it, it really is like you show up to the restaurant, you have a good um, relationship with the chef you know, you want to get in and get out and you want to thank them profusely because even though you might think, oh, it's no big deal. They're just saving shell. If you've ever worked in a restaurant or know people like it is one big choreographed show and you can't have things, you know, screw up. So, you know, we're we're just very grateful and, and to them. And we always thank them for saving shell because it's just one more thing that the chef has to think about like, oh, we're going to save Shell for Wild Oyster Project. But but generally speaking, uh, it's been really, the relationship between us and the restaurants has been fantastic. I will say that uh, the pandemic set us back a great deal, as it did our partners on the East Coast. We used to have 10 restaurants who were donating Shell. And, you know, when, when the pandemic Cause the first shutdown, all of the restaurants shut down, as you recall. Right. So, Linda, I wanted to ask you quickly if uh -huh. uh, we have oysters, people eat oysters all over the country. Um, certainly, we have plenty in the Colorado area. If there are restaurants for people who want to be involved in donating their oyster shells, is there any mechanism for engagement or is it just too logistically difficult getting oyster shells from various parts of the country? to these um, oyster restoration locations, like in San Francisco Bay? The latter. Mm -hmm. Because <clears throat> it's funny because I get phone calls or emails from people like from Scotland or from Santa Barbara. And I said, well, you know, we're kind of focused on this one geographic area. And, uh, you know, people don't understand that to save shells, you know, oyster shell can be kind of stinky unless they get cleaned. So, that's why our most successful shell mounds are located at nurseries with chickens, where the chickens actually clean the shell for us. However, having said that, I can tell you that 
there are environmental benefits from just collecting shell and putting them on your roof. There is an organization called the White Roof. I think it's whiteroofs.org. As you know, the way that heat reflects off of a roof, if you have a dark roof, then you're trapping, this is really important during this heat wave, uh, then you're trapping the heat in your house. If you have, and this organization encourages people to paint their roofs white, but you can accomplish the same thing with your oyster shells. You can just, great and, idea. <laughs> and you can just put the oyster shells up there. And, you know, some of our friends who are oyster farmers, they use the shell and this could be done very easily in Colorado. <laughs> They use their shell for landscaping. I mean, Hog Island just takes dumps the shell out in their parking lot. I mean, it gets crushed, but then they've got a nice, nice parking lot. And uh, so, I mean, the water filters through it from the rains and it's white and reflective. Crushed shell is great parking material. Um, Great, obviously, for growing new oyster reefs, you were saying they, there's natural die-offs. Now we have a kind of unnatural die-off in the bay now with this harmful algal bloom that's been supercharged by warming waters. It's killed off a lot of a lot of fish, a lot of rays, apparently has not hurt your oysters yet. Is that correct? Well, this is so remarkable. This is like, I'm still trying to talk to people and try to figure out how this happened. But so we have this program called Oyster Base Camps. And what an Oyster Base Camp is, is a small cage filled with cured oyster shell. And we have five locations around the bay with Oyster Base Camp captains. And we've teamed up with a a company in Australia who created an application for us where we can collect data so we know what's going on with oysters around the bay and we can make decisions about where's the where is the best place to to install an oyster reef so casey who uh, casey harper who's our uh, deputy director she went out two weeks ago like right in the you know midst of this algal bloom just to do a regularly scheduled monitoring of the base camp. So they pulled the base camp out and they're looking at it. Um, and it's like a cage, a little two foot by side or four foot by side cage. Right. Right. And they open it up and they take the, you know, shells out to see like uh, to gauge recruitment, but they also monitor things like salinity, turbidity. And, you know, they're looking out at the water in Alameda and they're going, wow, this looks awful, but the cage looked great. And the remarkable thing was we had spat recruitment. We had baby oysters growing there. And I'm like, how is this possible? I mean, like in the midst of all of these floating dead fish, how are our oysters thriving? And I want to preface everything I'm going to say now with the statement that I am not a scientist, although I'm fascinated with this whole phenomenon and fascinated and frightened by this entire phenomenon of the algal bloom because I've been talking to people who are regular posters on iNaturalist and other people that I know involved in the oyster community. And here's what they found. 
not only were our Olympia oysters not seemingly not affected, but soft shell clams were not affected, barnacles were not affected, the blue mussels were gone. Here's the unscientific conclusions that we came to. The lower you are on the food chain, the safer you are. And a barnacle is pretty low on the food chain, as are oysters and clams. I think the mussels don't fare well because they're right at water level. They they they, they tend to be exposed a lot more than oysters. Oysters can be much farther down or even on the bottom of the bay. Now things could change. We're going to keep monitoring. I mean, it may be that the the low food chain organisms will be affected eventually. What about the algal bloom? Is it basically because it's it's hot? Are there changing conditions? What is the bigger picture um, that is causing this particular bloom that is so noticeable um, right now in the San Francisco Bay? Well, this is what I have gleaned from reading all of the articles and talking to people in the community and people who are collecting data. I mean, it's it's nutrient-based. So, and we have a drought. So 60% of all the nutrients that enter our bay come down through the delta into the bay. Normally in a really healthy environment, it would get you know, interspersed with like some clean water and it would eventually go out the gate. So these are nit- or like nitrogen, um, exactly. fertilizers. Phosphates. Yeah. From agriculture. 20% of it comes from um, your neighbors who insist on having a lawn and fertilizing their lawn. In San Francisco, we have a combined sewer system. So that means every bit of water is treated before it's released into the bay or the ocean. But in the East Bay, I mean, you have those lovely creeks that I've spent a lot of time in. But anytime there's a you know a, a nutrient overload, it it kills it kills wildlife in the creeks and goes directly into the bay. So you know, we could make a huge dent on that by just simply telling people they're not allowed to have lawns and they're not allowed to fertilize their lawns. <laughs> the Sacramento Delta brings a lot of agricultural uh, runoff from fertilizer pesticides into the bay. We're in a 1500-year drought, so there's less less water to flush the bay. There's this nutrient buildup, and at the same time, the water is warming up. And yes. science has shown warmer water supercharges these kind of algal blooms. Exactly. So, I mean, that is the the part that I find so frightening because some people I've talked to said like, this is not a one-time deal. This is, this is going to keep happening. What's the frequency um, in the past for these big algal blooms in the Bay? I've lived here for 50 years. I don't remember one. It's definitely drought related. It's definitely nutrient related and heat related. And heat related. Yes. When you are putting these oysters in these urban areas, is there a concern that people may see them and think of them as a food source and not recognize that they may not be the healthiest oysters, um, given what their job is to filter water and take a lot of the harmful ingredients out of the water? That's an excellent question. And one that we get all the time. So um, people say, 
are you encouraging people to eat these oysters that you're restoring to the bay? And our response is not yet. Mm-hmm. Because the you know our bay is still pretty polluted. Yeah, that's oysters are working hard to clean that water. In addition to that, we are not concerned that people will go and steal the oysters because unlike when when you order oysters on the half shell in in, in a restaurant, the way that you get oyster on the half shell is the the oyster farmer has tricked the oyster into an, adhering to a single grain of sand instead of an oyster reef. But if you went out to an oyster reef, and if you look at historic pictures of people oystering in the bay, they have these huge tongs and they have to break off these big, you know, mounds of oysters. So it's not so hard to go harvest oysters, especially when there you can just grab some mussels, you know, really easily. They're just like hanging on by hairs. And uh, or you can get some clams. I personally wouldn't eat even those. But the idea is to get enough oysters into the bay where their cumulative uh, goodness will, you know, someday make it possible to eat oysters from the bay. People want to do something. They want whatever they do to make a real difference and they want to be able to see results. So, and I think Linda, what you are doing with the wild or or oyster project is just that. And so I, I know David and I have been talking about this and we think it's such a cool idea and we're delighted that your oysters are doing well and that it's visible and it's an opportunity for people to, see it and feel like they have something they can contribute to it. So how do people get in touch if they want to become involved in, in restoring oysters in the Bay? Well, they can sign up at our website to volunteer and um, we can always, it's wildoysters.org. We want to thank you so much for your, your energy, your positive outlook, your, the, the whole idea that you want to get citizens involved. And thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. And good luck with your wild oyster project. Thank Thanks. you so much. And it was a pleasure to join you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.